This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled "Who Am I?" Recorded October twenty fifth, nineteen ninety two, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. There's one refrain that echoes through the whole of Hindu mysticism, and that is "Tat Vam Asi," which is Sanskrit, and it means "That Thou Art." The that refers to Brahman, which in Hindu mysticism is the ultimate absolute reality. It's、uh, described as one without a second. There's nothing but Brahman. But Brahman itself has no particular attribute, has no boundaries, has no limits. It's not a thing. Sometimes it's described as Sat Chit Ananda. Sat is being, Chit is consciousness, and Ananda is bliss. Even that, in a sense, is saying a little bit too much. But one word here that is particularly useful for us is the middle term, Chit consciousness. And often Brahman is described in Hinduism as pure consciousness. Now the import of this. Saying then is that what you are is Brahman, is this ultimate reality, this pure consciousness. That is what you are. You don't know it, but that's what you are.、And、this is the testimony of the Hindu mystics. Whether you believe it or not, that's what they say. Hui Ning, the founder of Zen Buddhism, said, "Our very self nature is the Buddha." And apart from this nature, there is no other Buddha. Now, the Buddha here is not the historical Sakyamuni <coughs> Buddha. The Buddha here is the Buddha mind, the Buddha nature, the Dharmakaya. Now, what is this in Buddhist thought? Sometimes it's described as Shunyata, which means emptiness. And what that means is the emptiness of any particular thing, of its own self-existence. When we hear it in English, we tend to think of some sort of big void, and sometimes it's translated like that. But Wei Ning himself said, "When you hear me talk about shunyata, the void, you mustn't imagine I'm talking about some vacuum." He said, "The void that I'm talking about, the shunyata." Is so vast that it includes everything—animals and peoples and stars and rivers and good people and bad people and laws applying to good people and bad people and governments and societies and、uh, galaxies—and he went on and on and on for three paragraphs, listing the things that this void contains. This is the Buddha nature. And the testimony of the Buddha, the historical Buddha, and all the enlightened Buddhas since, is that this is what you are. This is what you are. You don't know it, but this is what you are. And again, you don't have to believe it here, but it's just to recognize that this is the testimony of Buddhism. Sometimes we think that the Eastern mystics are different from the Western mystics. 
that they have a different idea because they have an idea of God and it's more personal and so forth. Nabin Arabi, the great Sufi, said, Allah is the essential self of all things. Everything, including who? You. This is why another great Sufi, Monsieur Halaj, said, I am the reality. Al-Haq. I am the reality. That ultimate reality. The absolute reality. Allah. For which he was crucified, just like another famous prophet was crucified for saying, I and the Father am one. Does anybody know who that is? <laughs> Jesus. And if you actually read the Gospels, this was the charge against him at his trial. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be one with the Father. Now, exoteric Christians take that to mean that, well, the historical Jesus was one with the Father, and you know, but nobody else is one with the Father. But that's not the way Christian mystics have taken it. So Meister Eckhart says, some people think that they will see God as if he were standing there and they hear. It is not so. God and I, we are one. Now, this is the testimony of the Sufis and the Christian mystics. Identical to the testimony of the Hindus and the Buddhists. It sounds unbelievable. It sounds so different from our normal experience of the world. But this is what we have to take seriously on a mystical path. We have to take it seriously. Notice that I didn't say we have to believe it. But we have to take seriously the fact that mystics all over the world, from different times and different places, have all arrived at the same realization. And if this is true, that means something's dreadfully wrong with our normal experience. That means there's something deluded about our normal experience. <coughs> and if we at least grant that the mystics may be right, then we could start a practice to try to discover what is wrong with our normal experience. Why is it that we don't experience the world this way and ourselves this way? Why don't we know anything about this Brahman, this Buddha nature, this reality, this God? How would we find out? How would we try to verify for ourselves if what the mystics say is true? Well, the secret is right there. If I and God, we are one, then if I know who I am, then I know what God is. If I know my true self, I know the Buddha nature. If I know the essence of myself, then I know Allah. 
If I really understood this I in here, I would know Brahman. I would know not as an object, the way, as Meister Eckhart says, not that God is standing before me, but as an identity. So the whole key of a mystical spiritual path is to find out who you are. And this is why you could say that the basic fundamental practice of mysticism is a practice of inquiry based on this question, who am I? Now, we use the term I all the time. I don't have any statistics on it, but I would venture to say that apart from uh, words like the and a and an, I is at least one of the most commonly used words in English discourse. I this, I that. Listen to yourself sometime. How many times has I come up? More importantly, it's employed by our thought processes. We're constantly thinking I, 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 I. You pick up the paper in the morning and you look at the movie section and what do you think? Will I like this movie? Or maybe I won't like this movie. A friend calls you up and tells you about a new restaurant opened up in town. Says you want to go. And you think, well, I like the food. And they tell you, oh, it's a Greek restaurant. You say, oh, I don't like Greek food. No, I don't think so. You walk into a clothing shop and you look at the racks and you think, will this look good on me? You go for a job. Will this job be good for me? Will I make a lot of money? Will I get ahead? You meet a new person in your life. You think, will this person take advantage of me? Will this person be a good friend to me? Everything we do, everything we think, stems from this question of how's it going to work out for me? You watch your mind. This you can check out very easily. See if this isn't true. Now, the question is, what is the referent of this word I or me? To what does it refer when you use that word? Have you ever really stopped to investigate that? Well, this is where the practice of self-inquiry begins. This question of who am I? You use the word I and me all the time, constantly. It governs all your activities. Wouldn't it be interesting to find out what is the real referent of it? Who is this I that I think is the center of all this? That I spend so much time and energy trying to protect or to enhance. How would we go about finding that out? Well, you can begin very simply, and that is just to look inside and see what it is there that this eye refers to. So this is going to be our meditation for this morning. We'll do a normal meditation, 
And for those of you who are in the Wednesday group, or if you're a long-time meditator, used to meditating with your eyes open, keep your eyes open. For those of you who are not, uh, close your eyes for this meditation. And simply turn attention inward and see what is there. What is it that this word I refers to? And note if you find something there. If you don't find any I there, what do you find in there? And after the meditation, we'll talk about it. We'll see what your experience was. Are there any questions about what we're going to do? I sort of verbally asking yourself questions. What? Yes. Whatever. This is not. There's no trick here. It's just simply to investigate. Uh, for instance, one of the things you might do, you might specifically look, ask yourself the question, who am I? And go look and see what that refers to, who that I refers to. If a thought arises that has I in it, like, oh, I wish I wasn't doing this meditation, say, okay, well, who does that I refer to then? And it's not a question of intellectually figuring this out. This isn't a, a philosophical exercise. You look and see what is actually there, if anything at all is there, that you can call I. And just see what you find, that's all. Okay? All right? If you would like to follow our format, Turn off your tape player and meditate for 15 to 20 minutes. Then turn the tape back on for the remainder of the program, which immediately follows. So, what did anybody find? Well, what I found is a multitude of different sounds. Describe more. Um, well, there was, there was the self that wanted to be happy, or there was the, the self that wanted to be accepted, and, and then there was planning self. That, that's very strong with me, um, planning the future. And, and that seemed to definitely take precedence over anything. It, um, if there was a conflict, and there always are conflicts, that self would win. The planning self. Yeah. How did you know these cells were there? Because I asked, um, who am I? But I had to look at who am I in a context. Well, I'm such and such a person in this context. I'm such and such in this. What I'm trying to drive at is, what was the form of these various little cells? I mean, what color was the planning self. Did it have a color? No. Okay. No. Did it have a texture? Mm -mm. No, it wasn't the sense thing at all. Well, then how did you know it was there? Well, it was an intellectual concept, I guess. So what you actually saw was a thought. Right. That's what you experienced, the thought. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. That's excellent. Anybody else find thoughts like this? 
Ida's the only one who found fault when she looked inside? I mean... Well, I had mostly visuals, you know, like I would say. I like fishing. So what came up was I saw myself with a fishing pole by the water. And it happened with, with other things, too. Like, I don't like that co-worker. I would have a visual of that co-worker and see a lack of harmony with that person. It always seemed to go visual. Okay. So what should we call that? We could call that a, a visual thought or a, a fantasy or an imagination. imagination. An imagination. So when you looked inside, you found images. <laughs> images in which yourself was pictured. We could put it that way. Good. Who else? Well, I saw uh, thoughts and uh, images itself, too. A thought connected with the image or a yeah. thought about the image. So maybe a thought like, oh, that's who I am as you see yourself in some situation. That's who I am as a part. Hmm? That's who I am as a part. So I go into feeling what that thought, what that feeling represents, and see the image according to that. So, okay, you had a feeling that that created an image, is that what you're saying? And yeah. then And then you recognized yourself as part of that image, is that? Yeah. Okay. So this is bringing feeling now connected with this. The feeling, image, thought, mixed together somewhat. I mean, like also like my legs got really tight, so I kind of amplified that to see what was happening. So sensation too was in there. Yeah, a so sensation, I, a specific sensation. Tight legs, like concrete legs stomping into the earth. So the sensation gave rise to a feeling, which gave rise to an image. And then probably thought about the image. Yeah, what the image meant to me. Good, okay. So, thought, image, feeling, sensation. Well, either a different experience or amplify this, or the same sort of thing, or a variation of this. I had, uh, I found similar things too. I found, I guess, primarily that what the I that I think of, that we think of, is thoughts about the thoughts it's the it's the good and bad labels that i was placing on every thought that came up give one example of a thought that came up that you placed this label on um okay for for example if my mouth became filled with saliva or something and i would i would think well should i clear my throat well that'll be might be bad meditatively speaking you know will that look good or look bad, that sort of thing. Mm. And there are numerous thoughts that I noticed along those lines or outside of here or something about the world or another person. And the thoughts that just came up were there, but I attached I to those in a sense and limited that. It's like that the emptiness that you were talking about in Zen terms. It's like all those thoughts that were coming up was the fullness of that emptiness. It's just that the I that I attached to that limited that, mm -hmm. or limited me from seeing that whole emptiness, if that makes any sense. Yes, it does make sense. But what you did actually experience was not an emptiness, but it sounds like a sort of multi-layered thoughts, a thought yeah. about a thought. So a thought would come up, and then another thought would come up saying, oh, that won't look good. And that would give me a, a feeling 
and then or some sort of sensation. And from that sensation, I might also place another thought on that. Oh, like this is very interesting. What sort of sensation? Uh, anxiety. Okay. So a thought arises as, for example, I need to cough. or, a, mm -hmm. And then another thought on top of that arises, oh, I shouldn't cough because that's going to make me look like a bad meditator. Mm -hmm. That creates a feeling of anxiety, which then creates another thought. He's describing karma here, folks. <laughs> I'm serious. What does the Buddha say in uh, the Dhammapada? Thought is the forerunner of all things. Thought is the forerunner of all deeds. The thought arises, the thought about the thought arises, it creates suffering, which creates another thought, which creates more anxiety, which creates, and so the whole thing starts to roll. The whole law of karma uh, is thrown into operation. The wheel of cyclic existence begins to turn. And the more anxious you get, the more you run, the faster mm -hmm. it turns. Very interesting. But to get back to specifically the question, what you found were thoughts about thoughts, so multiple levels of layers of thoughts, so one thought following on another thought, commenting on that thought mixed in with feelings of anxiety and so forth that would arise. Okay, good. Who else? Yeah, Valerie. Um, who, who am I led to images of people, places, uh, you know, friends, and, and I would see their face and their me, and then uh, images of mountains and, and, and uh, the whole thing just a lot of different images, I was traveling fast over the earth, and feeling that I was even beyond all that, then there was sadness, and the sadness was, well, I'm not sure, but it kind of a, on this side of not getting it, that I am all that, and, uh, and, and the sadness that I'm uh, disconnected from that me, and then there was uh, somewhere there's some laughing, just like, ah, like, uh, uh, and That it is all me, and there's a happy kind of a connecting there too. And then when I would keep asking, Who am I? I, I could see this entity. When I usually refer to I, it is this uh, boundary of flesh and bone where it walks and goes about. And so it, it seemed that I could look down at that little eye and you know, smile at it and realize that that's how it sees itself. And then I try to think of a neighbor or somebody I don't feel that connection with. And, and I looked at her and I thought, Okay, why don't I see her as I there? Why doesn't she feel? And so I hovered over and, and tried to see what the difference was between, uh, and in there somewhere there's a judgment that she is not X, Y, and Z. So when I, lo I love or feel open or good about all that's out there, there's more of a sense of connection. So I was exploring all that, and it seemed to bounce back and forth between either this entity looking at that entity or anything else. Okay. So you could say this is sort of a connected visualization, these weren't just random things, but you were purposely sort of looking in your in your mind. You didn't actually see your friend here in the flesh, right? You right. saw your friend in your with your mind's eye, right. with your imagination. Right. So that you were finding were images, imagination. Right. Right? Representation. Right. Representations, images and so forth, okay? okay? And then with a series of feelings. Right. Sadness and Laughter and kind of a happiness, happy right. feelings, sad feelings. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
and then some sensation or at least some idea that normally there's sensation that you associate with eye, flesh and bone and stuff, right? This focal point. Right. right. Okay. So did anybody find anything else when they looked inside other than thought, images, imagination, sensation, or feeling? Movement? Movement of... Uh, Exchange. But don't all sensations, all thoughts, all feelings move? Aren't they constantly moving? Yeah. Did anybody find anything in all this that wasn't moving? Changing, as Petrol says. You did. What? Yeah. What? Emotion. Bodily, emotion is bodily sensation. Didn't move? Didn't move. What emotion? What... Oh, it's in my throat here, here, my stomach. And it stayed through the whole meditation. You yeah. And you're aware of it now. Yeah. And you're always aware of it? No. No. Okay, so it does move. It didn't maybe yes, move. Yes, but it didn't move during meditation. Okay, okay. You might have a, for instance, a cramp in your leg for a 10-minute meditation. It won't move in the meditation. But did anybody find anything in there that never moves? Let me rephrase it. My point here is that when you went to look for an eye, you found thoughts, imaginations, feelings, sensations, all of which were impermanent, all of which come and go. Is that true? Now, how many of you actually feel that you come and go? You do? You mean there are periods when you're not there? Well, I go into daydreams, and I um, I just have to snap back into my regular self. So you're not there when you're daydreaming? Right. So there's just a daydream going on? Right. I'm, I'm not there when I'm asleep. I don't know where I'm at. Cause... How do you know you're not there? How do you know you're not there? When I wake up, I didn't know where I was. Say that again? When I wake up, I didn't know where I was. Well, I didn't know where I was on February 26, 1991, but it doesn't mean I wasn't there all of February 26, 1991. I mean, it's, it's an after effect after I wake up, by the time I'm sleeping. But this is an after effect, too. On February <coughs> 26, I knew where I was. It's an after effect. I don't know where what I was. What was the question at first? How do you know you weren't there when you were sleeping? I mean, has anybody had an experience of themselves not being there? Of course, if you did, I'm going to ask you the question, who experienced you not being there? <laughs> Doesn't that also depend upon what faculty you, I mean, you look at to determine who was there? But this is what we're trying to find out. What I'm saying is that it's very common for us to just assume that we are thoughts or sensations or emotions or, you know, whatever. Just to assume that that's what we are. This is what fills our consciousness. But if you examine it more closely, you will find that any sensation, any thought, any emotion passes. And then it raises a, a deeper question. 
or it raises the same question, who am I, on a deeper level. Then who was it who observed the passing of this thought, sensation, emotion, or whatever? Who was it that observed the waking up? The boundaries of my individuality, my identity, currently. Well, this is what we're trying to find out. We're, you're assuming this, some sort of individuality. But I'm saying, go look at those boundaries. There's some degrees of that, but I can't totally define my boundaries. I mean, that's an ongoing thing for a person who really want to venture into that. This is exactly what we want to venture into. What are the boundaries? What is a boundary when we talk about boundaries? The more you look inside, the more you ask this question, who am I, and actually go look, the more reality reveals itself. This is why a spiritual path in this sense is progressive. The deeper you go, the more you find out. Or I should perhaps say, the less you find out. The less convinced you are that you are who you thought you were when you began. If you observe carefully, and this is what happens in meditation, how a thought arises, how it stays, how it passes, how a sensation arises, stays around for a while, perhaps a whole ten minutes, but passes. All these things arise and pass. And then the question moves back to who then is watching these things arise and pass? I can't be these things because I'm not arising and passing. I, who's the observer of all this, who is it that's observing them arising and passing? Who is it that knows when you flip into a daydream and then come out of it, who knows, oh, I have been daydreaming and now I'm out of it? Who's observed that? Who has observed that when there's a feeling of love, there's more happiness, and when there's a feeling of being closed off, there's more sadness? Who knows that? Who observes it? Do you see what I mean? We start to realize or start to sense that whatever is going on, it's going on in a field of awareness. All of you look around the room in this moment. Notice what's here in the field of awareness. Notice. Plant in your mind a resolve two hours from now. Remember this and look to see what's then in your field of awareness at that time. And notice that all this is gone from that field of awareness. completely gone, totally different new things in your field of awareness, unless you hang around here for more than two hours. Note that. Remember that. But what is awareness? How would you observe awareness? Who is aware of awareness? 
You can think of it as a sort of having a flashlight in a dimly lit room. And you shine the flashlight on something that you think is you. Let's say the body. And then you realize, well, who is it that's looking at the body? Or who is it that's experiencing these sensations that I collectively call body? And then you take the flashlight and you try to turn it around to see its own source. Where is the light coming from? It's an analogy for attention. And just as you may try to turn the flashlight back on itself to find the source of the light, you try to turn attention back on itself. Interesting uh, clue in there, because of course, what happens when you turn the flashlight back on itself to find the source of the light? I mean, it can't be done, can it? Dr. Wolf used to say, you're looking for the subject to consciousness. But when you go look inside or outside, by the way, you find objects in consciousness, phenomena in consciousness, all these things arising in the field of awareness. Whether they appear to you to be outside, for instance, if you look out at that pillow, that's outside, we say. Or whether you look inside and have a feeling, but that's still a phenomena, something arising and passing in consciousness. Or whether you look at your own leg, and it's pretty weird, if that's you, how is it that you're looking at it? Is the leg outside or inside of you? Everybody look at your leg. Is that outside or inside of you? It's very interesting, because if you do think you're your body, then you're outside yourself, aren't you? I'm not asking you or, or expecting you to come up with definitive answers here. I'm trying to give you uh, clues of what sorts of questions to ask. Look how primitive these questions are. How much they're tied to your own empirical experience of yourself and the phenomena that goes on in your life. This is what self-inquiry means. And when you do look inside or outside and you see this phenomena arising outside or inside and you experience how it arises and how it passes and how it arises and passes, how it's all ephemeral and your own sense of identity will of itself start to shift. You don't have to come to an intellectual conclusion about this. It will just naturally start to shift. You will no longer be so identified with these ephemeral things that come and go. And on a spiritual path, this is very freeing. It means you don't have to cling to certain emotions because this is a good emotion, or certain thoughts because this is labeled a good thought. You don't have to push away other emotions that you label as bad emotions or hide from them or thoughts that you've labeled as bad thoughts. You recognize that in some way they're not really me. You feel now that they are not really me. And so they can arise and they can pass 
and they can be what they are. You get this freedom called detachment in spiritual terms. You have a more relaxed, open attitude about life, about other people, about other beings. But you can't stop there. You must continue this inquiry. It gets subtler and subtler. Who then is having this open, spacious experience? Who then is becoming more detached, less identified? Who is observing? And you begin to realize, oh, there's just this kind of awareness here. Maybe that's who I am. Just this awareness that's always there. But don't stop the inquiry then. Who's having this thought? Oh, I must be the awareness. Who's aware of the awareness? Who's paying attention to attention? You keep pushing the inquiry farther and farther back, going deeper and deeper and deeper. And ultimately, you continue doing this, you do it relentlessly, and eventually you will realize what all the great mystics have realized. You are not any of this phenomena arising and passing away. You are that field of awareness, a field of consciousness, which itself never arises or passes away. And ultimately even, that there is no distinction or difference from all this phenomena and the field. And then what sounded so unbelievable when you first heard it, that that limitless, ultimate, absolute Brahman is who you really are, will be known to you directly, immediately, always, simply through identity. Any questions about the practice? Once you know that, um, does it stay that way? I mean, could, could, or can you sort of see it? It's, it's, you ask the question because when we think of knowing, we think of an intellectual knowing, which is a thought, which comes and goes. That is not the kind of knowledge we're talking about. That's the kind of knowledge of a subject and an object. In fact, whenever you think, I know something, very interesting. Who is the knower? You know what the known is. I know algebra. Well, there in your mind you can see or think these equations, but who is thinking or seeing these equations? So this is why in all traditions, there's always a special term for this kind of knowing, to distinguish it from that subject-object sort of knowing. So whether it's Janana in Sanskrit, or Prajna in Buddhism, uh, or Gnosis, that knowing is not a knowing of a subject knowing an object. And the closest perhaps we could come to this is an example of a not-knowing, or knowing something that you're not. For instance, are you a goat? No. 
Do you know you're not a goat? Is this something that once you know you're not a goat, does it stay with you always? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see what I'm, I'm talking about? You could. It's better perhaps to put it the other way around. The delusion never again arises that you are anything but Brahman. Just the way the delusion just never arises that you're a goat in your normal life. You don't walk around worrying about whether you're a goat or not and think, I have to remember that I'm not a goat here, and saying, oh, gee, sometimes I slip back into thinking I'm a goat. You know what I mean? <laughs> in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, this whole process of self-inquiry is likened to a farmer whose prize bull has been stolen. And he wakes up one morning and his neighbors come and they say, during the night, the thieves ran off with your prize bull. But he's so attached to that bull, he just cannot believe it. So he goes and he walks all the way around his property and he looks in all the little gullies where he knows his prize bull likes to hide out. And until he's examined every square inch of his property, he doesn't really believe what his neighbors have said. It's only through his own experience that he really finally comes to accept the truth of the fact that his prize bull is gone. The same principle applies here with mystical teachings. The mystics are like your neighbors. They can come and tell you you don't really have any self in there, and you may intellectually assent to that, but it doesn't do any good until you yourself have examined the whole property. Do you know what I mean? All the terrain of self and never found a self, a limited, particular individual self. You find sensations, you find thoughts, you find emotions, you find all the stuff that passes and goes, but you never find a referent to that I. It's a, some sort of entity, some sort of being. And so it's through your own practice that you really come to know in your own experience that this is true. There's one thing more, however. I don't think this analogy is quite complete or doesn't go quite far enough. It leaves you with a, a sense of purely a negative kind of knowledge. But Gnosis also has a unimaginable positive side to it. And something that happened to Jennifer and I, I think, is a good metaphor for this. One night we were in the bedroom and uh, one of our cats likes to go in the closet. And so if you're not careful, you can lock the cat in the closet. And so we were lying in the bed, and the other cats were on the bed, and Cinder was missing. And we started saying, do you think Cinder's locked in the closet? You know, I wonder where she is. So I got up in the middle of the night, and I didn't turn on the light, because Jennifer was still, you know, I didn't want to wake her completely up. And I rummaged through the closet with my hands and so forth, and I looked at all the places that Cinder likes to hide out, and I knew Cinder was not in the closet. So then I closed the door. But there was still something missing. And I closed the door, and then I turned around, and then I saw Cinder on the dresser. Do you see the extra jump? You know that there is no self in there, but then you also suddenly, instantly, in a flood of illumination, know the positive side, the I am Brahman. God and I, we are one. The Buddhists always like to stop short of that. Sometimes they don't, but it, particularly in their technical writings, they like to stop short of that because the minute you get a name like Brahman or God or whatever, you suddenly have then again a thing. 
an object. You feel like you're looking for some object. This is what Meister Eckhart tried to warn against, you know. Some people think they're going to see God as though he were standing there and I'm standing here, as though God were an object and I'm the subject, and I could know God that way. But I'm never going to know God as an object. God and I, we are one. So what my teacher, Dr. Wolf, said was, remember this. The subject to consciousness, the true you, can never be an object before consciousness. can never appear as some object. So whenever you are conducting this self-inquiry, whenever you're looking, whenever you suspect maybe this is me, something that you're observing, no matter what it is, something like bodily sensations or something very subtle, like an experience of bliss, Remember, if it's an object before consciousness, if an object in consciousness, if it's something that you are experiencing, that ain't you. Who's the experiencer? Ask. These are clues and hints and instructions of how to conduct this inquiry. But you yourselves have to make the inquiry. That I can't do for you. No one can do for you. Yes. Uh, this is sort of just anecdotal. Uh, I've been doing this sort of practice for a while, and uh, I realized that we have to look when we ask, who am I? We have to look at what does that word I mean to us in our language. And one of the things that had blocked me was the idea of what uh, am I in context in this culture, and that's the body-mind system. And then I came to the thought of, I'm not there all the time in this body-mind system. So it seemed very essential to look and say, am I going to be defining the I as what other people say is the I, or am I going to be defining the I as the actual conscious experience I have? And defining the I as the actual conscious experience, then the the analogy came to me during this meditation. It's like moving from one house to another. You know, when you're in your old house, it, it all seems so natural. The trees and the light, everything is you. And then you go to a new one, and it's it's so different. And then after a while, it comes to seeing you. And uh, that was sort of not just leaving the body, but the whole uh, atmosphere of that the is... body in there. Very beautiful, and, and this is exactly the analogy that uh, St. Teresa of Avila used when she described the uh, mansions the in- of the interior castle, that you start off in the outer rooms, that you just assume this is all there is, do you know what I mean? And as a spiritual path progresses, you start moving into the inner rooms, and they become your abode, do you know what I mean? And, and more and more and more. Wonderfully put, beautifully put. And also, the, this absolute necessity not to accept how other people have defined you. All mystical seekers are rebels in that sense. Every one of them. All of them refuse to just accept what they've been told. They refuse to buy into what everybody else says they are. They insist on finding out for themselves. And one of the, our greatest obstacles on a spiritual path, you find, is this habit 
of thinking and experiencing yourself in a way that your culture has shaped. And it's a very difficult habit to break, and it's not just an intellectual sort of thing. You have to watch your experience carefully. That's how experience gets transformed, truly, is through this observation of it, which creates new experience of yourself, a transformed experience. It seems like being on a spiritual path sometimes makes a lot of trouble. Because the more you learn to observe, the the less you fall into your normal habits, which you used to have, especially... In the area of small talk, you know, yes. somebody at work comes up and just says something ridiculous. And, you know, your normal response would be to just fall into this ridiculous conversation. But then as you observe, you kind of hold back words and you become more of a quiet person. And it's less accepting to other people to be that way. So. If you don't want trouble, don't go on a spiritual path. <laughs> as, to paraphrase Zorba, a spiritual path is about undoing your belt and going looking for trouble. And Jesus said it in the Gospel of Thomas very well. He said, uh, whoever seeks, first they shall be troubled, and then they shall find, and when they find, they shall reign over the all. You've got to have trouble. You've got to uh, be willing to experience suffering and anxiety and isolation and whatnot. And this is actually the true meaning of all the teachings about being willing to put up with persecution. Anyone who goes on a spiritual path is going to suffer persecution. It may not be an organized social persecution of a group of spiritual believers, do you know what I mean? But you personally in your life are going to experience persecution. You're going to experience tremendous pressure to stay in the old rut. Because anybody who breaks out of this is a tremendous threat to those around them. Because the reality that we live in normally is a purely imaginary reality. It's a constructed reality. It's a reality that's constructed out of the mind and out of the imagination. And because the mind and the imagination and thoughts are all ephemeral, it has to be constantly maintained. And how do people maintain it? By small talk. It's constantly checking in. Oh, we're still in the same reality. This is the reality, isn't it? Oh, yes, this is the reality. I agree this is the reality. Don't you agree this is the reality? That's the subtext, and that's the purpose of all this. It sustains and maintains this reality. And anybody who starts to say, well, wait a minute, maybe this isn't the real reality, is a threat to everybody else who lives in that reality. You can see this throughout all history in any culture, in any society. Those who question the basic reality have to be silenced because they're not participating in maintaining it. And if nobody's maintaining it, it dies. And that that applies personally. You fall silent not only with other people, but you start to become a quiet person in your head. And become a quiet person in your head, and that reality starts to die for you. Because your own mind isn't constantly generating it and keeping it going and maintaining it. It takes a lot of courage to go on a spiritual path. Very definitely. Like when you're talking, like after a gnosis, that there's no longer a subject and object, 
Any, anything in your experience? I don't know quite that word, but, um, you know, subjectively, you know, what's in your consciousness is no longer outside of you. There's, there's no... What, what did Dr. Wolf say? What was your... Between the subject and object of consciousness, nothing that you experience is um, subjective. Um, the subject to consciousness can never appear as an object of consciousness. Right. Okay. okay, that's slightly different. But ultimately, there is nothing but God. There is nothing but Brahman. Brahman is one without a second. There's no, nothing else, do you see what I mean? So, in a certain sense, all this that's arising in consciousness is one, is Brahman. And what Gnosis discloses and reveals is that that is true. Now, notice this. It does not mean that all boundaries disappear. It's that you see that all boundaries are indeed imaginary. So it's not a question of having a really, truly speaking, if we want to be precise, it's not a question of having the appearance of boundaries disappear. It's a question of having the belief that boundaries are real disappear or vanish. The boundaries don't vanish, but the belief vanishes. So, for instance, um, an analogy, a magic trick. If I were a magician, I could take this gong striker, which I'm holding in my hand, and I could go flip, flip, and then I could hold my hand and it would be gone, right? And if you were naive and didn't come from this culture, you might believe that I was a very powerful magician, that I had magic powers, that I actually made the gong disappear. But then I showed you the trick, do you see what I mean? Slowly, and I showed you how I manipulated the gong striker back between my fingers so it was like this, and then I let it fall down my sleeve or something. Now, the next time you see me do it, it's not that you don't see the same thing, but you never again believe I have magic powers. You still enjoy the trick. It's a pretty good trick. I wish I could do it. <laughs> but you see, what, what's changed here? It was not the appearance. What flipped was something that you once believed to be true, you now see and now know is no longer true. You once believed that you were separate from the world or separate from God. And now you know that's not really true. Okay, why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close. And of course, you're all welcome to stay and have tea and cookies and check out the library. <laughs>